welcome to this episode of Talking Constitutions, a series of podcasts in which we explore the constitutional arrangements that frame the day-to-day -day affairs of politics and that affect our lives in a myriad of ways. Our subject today is the topical one of constitutions and emergencies, considering how constitutions affect responses to emergencies and how emergencies lead to constitutional change. My name is John Hudson, and with me I have Jim Gallagher and Catherine Styler. Jim Gallagher is a former civil servant who headed the Scottish Justice Department. He was the UK government's most senior advisor on devolution and other constitutional issues, working in the Cabinet Office and the Number 10 Policy Unit under Gordon Brown. Catherine Styler was a Labour member of the European Parliament for 20 years and has now been Chief Executive Officer of the Open Knowledge Foundation for the last 18 months. And the first question that I would like to ask Jim to get the discussion going is whether there's a general tendency for emergencies to increase the power of the executive. Well, yes. The clue is in the name, actually, because emergencies demand a speedy and a flexible response, and only the executive is in a position to do that. Parliament is, after all, a talking shop. The clue is in that name as well. And often in an emergency, you don't have much time uh, for debate or challenge. Uh, you have to act. So governments, in the first instance, tend to get going. Indeed, one of the challenges in the present emergency is that the government didn't get going quick enough. But that's another story. Catherine, would you like to add to that? Yes, I think that Jim is right that executives use emergencies and have to because of the urgency and the nature of the emergency. But clearly also parliaments play a, a key point in the legitimacy. So when we look at the measures that have been taking place in terms of how we reacted to COVID, it was through a parliamentary vote that many of the, 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 the rules that we now abide by have been given this legitimacy. So I think, yes, um, emergencies do increase the power of the executive, but they also have to have legitimacy too. And I think what's interesting about that, Catherine, is that what you see in the emergency process is very much the approach of regulation rather than uh, debate on primary legislation. The regulations tend to be a package deal, uh, so everything's in there, and they tend to have a very wide range of executive powers for ministers to do things. An interesting exception in Scotland, actually, uh, was the regulations uh, dealing with justice during the current emergency, where the Scottish Parliament rebelled against the idea that jury trials would be abolished and the executive backed off. Generally speaking, of necessity, the executive gets its way. And then in Scotland, just narrowly, um, in, in, the, the issue around freedom of information and the extension of the days uh, that, uh, that they were allowed to, from I think 30 to 60 days, and that didn't happen in England. It was quite an interesting one in terms of emergency powers, and uh, it only went through by a few votes. And then the consequential debates after that about why did they do that when there was no ne necessity for that. So I think it is interesting how in different parliaments they have dealt with this in different ways. I, I think that's right. The um, 
freedom of information issue, of course, was one which had been bubbling away in Scotland. And as you rightly say, it wasn't necessary to deal with the emergency. It was the government, the government's argument uh, was that it was struggling to do ordinary business during the epidemic. And this was one way of lessening the pressure. And as you say, the Scottish Parliament really didn't like that. Do you think um, constitutions usually have inbuilt within them ways of responding fast to emergencies or is it by necessity cobbled together? I think it is often by necessity cobbled together and I think one of the lessons of the present emergency uh, is that maybe the cobbling needs to be pre-prepared a bit more. The UK tradition is very much one which is built on uh, if you like a military approach and this goes all the way back to Oliver Cromwell and his major generals and was tested out of course uh, in in war and uh, one looks at for example the defense of the realm acts uh, which were passed in the uh, first war and the second world war uh, they gave enormous powers to ministers really very substantial and arbitrary powers to direct the economy to seize uh, land if they had to, though ultimately with some compensation to requisition and so on uh, and so forth. And our assumption has rather been uh, in emergencies since then that the civil defence part of that was very active after the Second World War and during the Cold War is the template for how we deal with emergencies. And I'm not sure that uh, nowadays that's wholly appropriate. Catherine, would you like to follow on? Yeah, I think I think what Jim's talking about in terms of thinking about back to Cromwell and then thinking about the first and second wars and thinking about how that what that looks like today. The issue of this emergency that we have today was you could say on one level predictable. And that in twenty eleven we had the OECD saying that pandemics were, you know, the, the kind of one of the key things that we should be planning for. We had the Blue, um, they, they did what was it in 2016? There was the the um, the exercise that carried out for three days, which has never been published. And so we find ourselves when we are in an emergency. How can you know we are in an emergency? We are trying to deal with an emergency. Yet so much of that planning could have been in place for something that was, you know, predictable. So how can we learn from what we have experienced? And what does that mean in terms of our constitutional arrangements? Um, and that's something we're learning day in, day out. And Catherine is absolutely right, of course. Not only was this emergency predictable, it was actually predicted. Uh, a pandemic was at the top of the UK's National Risk Register. Uh, what wasn't done, unfortunately, was to put in the emergency infrastructure in such a way that it could leap into action, as it were. It took a while, uh, not necessarily because of the machinery, but because of the difficulty of getting political leaders to focus on something which was really quite left field for them. It came, as it were, as far as the political leaders were concerned, out of the blue. Uh, and we need a structure which makes it easier for politicians to change gear and move into emergency mode uh, rather than hesitate and vacillate, as they seem to have done in this case. So we seem to actually have, in a way, three levels. Rather than simply the constitutional and the political, we have the constitutional and the political 
and the administrative infrastructure, almost as a separate element which can be, but put it kindly, nobbled by lack of political planning or by the contrasting needs and priorities of politics and administration. And we face three, you know, other emergencies, don't we? We've got the climate crisis, we've got inequality, and we now see that raised over the issue about structural racism, and we have a mental health crisis. Three crises, that, three emergencies that we know are present, and what are we doing about those emergencies? Well, I think it's quite important to distinguish between uh, huge crises issues like climate change. Uh, and uh, big social questions like inequality, uh, and the narrow definition of an emergency, which is something which uh, emerges very quickly, it comes not necessarily out of the blue, but it, it goes from uh, being possible to being actual in a very short period of time. Uh, and those bigger issues, which are uh, are with us always, and the kind of response and the mechanics of response may difference, differ between the one and the other. Uh, Twenty odd years ago, uh, I was the Secretary of the UK's Civil Contingencies Committee in the Cabinet Office, at a time when our civil emergency machinery had almost fallen into disuse. The, um, uh, the post-Cold War machinery, which was what worried us all, thinking about the awful prospect of nuclear war and the regulations which were drafted to deal with uh, that almost unthinkable and actually unthinkable uh, contingency, had rather gone into desuetude, and we hadn't got uh, a, a set of arrangements prepared to deal with the range of possible threats to what in those days we used to refer to as our national infrastructure. Ironically, the first one that we did prepare for was the Y2K bug, which turned out not to be an emergency at all. And to be fair to governments and to the administrative machinery, they've gone a fair way uh, towards preparing uh, effective civil contingencies reform. But the present crisis has shown up some real weaknesses in that, some of which have a constitutional basis. Moving from what Jim has just said makes me think of another thing, which is how um, constitutional arrangements in terms of uh, internal uh, constitutional powers within a single political unit or complex political unit work. Uh, observing the present crisis in the US, for example, one has so far been seeing uh, conflict between state level and federal level, between governor and president, but increasingly one is seeing potential for conflict between state and state. So I was wondering in what ways emergencies test arrangements for territorial distribution of power, such as federalism or devolution. I think, I think case, yeah. carry on, Catherine. I think in the case of devolution, isn't it been interesting to see how the different con con constituent parts of the UK are working? So you have, you know, the first minister in Scotland and the first minister in Wales coming together when uh, they were not opening up um, as quickly as uh, the Prime Minister mm -hmm. was suggesting in England. And then you have what's happening in Northern Ireland as well. I think it's highlighted that we have four different arrangements in our United Kingdom, and also a different style of leadership 
happening in England is happening in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland. And this is highlighting, I think, for the first time since we've had devolution, about different ways of working. So on one level, I think that's actually highlighting the constructive and positive aspects of devolution in a way possibly that we weren't doing be be before. I think that's an, uh, an interesting uh, reflection, particularly the one on the style of leadership, which has been clearly quite different. But the structural question here uh, is less about style and more about the extent to which uh, an emergency does or, or potentially does not require a coordinated response. And that's coordinated in two respects. Coordinated across the physical territory of a state, and it's very interesting uh, you were talking about the US, John, to see coordination across the big physical territory of the US being problematic. Uh, because the epidemic is going down in some places and up in others, and coordination also across the different levels of power of government. So this crisis is most unusual because it is both a health crisis and an economic crisis. It's an economic crisis because the health response uh, is economically very damaging. But many of the levers for dealing with the health crisis are at one level of government, uh, in our case, the devolved level of government, uh, but the, most of the measures for dealing with the immediate economic crisis uh, are at the national level. So you've got the um, UK government's furlough scheme, which realistically only that level of government could do for financial and operational reasons. And a degree of coordination between these two is essential. Uh, circumstances, physical circumstances, may differ in different parts of the UK. But what we've seen is different judgments by the different governments about the balance of risk between the economic and health aspects of the crisis. As a result, and I, I'm not criticising one government or the other here, but we do get mixed messages uh, to the population. And we can see the effect of some of that, I think, uh, in public responses to the um, to the calls for restraint and lack of movement and so on. It's not the only reason, but it's certainly one of them. I think there's a few things there, Jim, that, that you've, you've touched upon. And I think one of them that we haven't really touched upon is the, the lack of global coordination. So when we think about how the World Health Organization has um, really you know, faced a huge amount of pressure, particularly the lack of, of American buy-in, shall we say, and now they're pulling out of the WHO. And then the fearfulness about the basic um, steps that should be taken and are not being taken, which again boils down to leadership. And then on top of all of this, for the first time, we have a pandemic, a global health crisis, an economic crisis. We have an infodemic. We have an, an area where false information spreads across the globe and, and prevents us um, in some instances from um, the health messages going across, from um, from actually tackling the virus, um, in, in, again, in some instances. So for the first time, I think, in our history, this infodemic that we're facing cuts across nations, cuts across boundaries. And we've really failed in that aspect of how we deal with um, that situation. I think you're right, Catherine, to draw attention, especially to the globalised nature of this. And as you say, um, 
we have the equivalent of a, a, of a virus in the uh, public information system. Richard Dawkins' idea of a meme is uh, absolutely uh, relevant here. The analogy between something which reproduces but is, uh, is damaging is very strong. Uh, a striking thing about the globalized world that we live in is that a consequence is that many of our crises will be globalized. The most obvious previous example was the financial crisis of 2008, uh, which was a global financial crisis. Uh, a few parts of the world were um, exempt from it because they weren't closely integrated into the global financial system, but most of the world was badly affected. And it took global coordination to deal with that. And we had that on the occasion, and the UK government at the time uh, took a, actually a leading role uh, in persuading other governments to act globally. Uh, we've struggled to get a global response to this virus uh, for the reasons you say, Catherine, in particular, uh, the US view, uh, which was driven by some really very unpleasant domestic politics. But we will need a global response to the economic effects of the crisis, which will, with, will be with us uh, for some years yet. Uh, it's pretty scandalous that the World Health Organization, who have responded, I think, pretty well to a very difficult challenge, are being defunded. But it will be, if anything, even more important uh, to get some kind of global economic response to what could be the biggest downturn since the Great Recession of the 1930s. And there isn't the governance for that at the moment either. Catherine, you mentioned questions of compliance as one of the issues that had uh, been linked to distribution of power within the United Kingdom. And you also mentioned global coordination, which, of course, is acting without a global constitution and without any framework, in this case, I think, of international law. So what do you think of as the role of law within uh, responses to, to emergencies and the relationship of the role of law and the role of consent? If I do with the latter part of your question, John, about consent, I think that's been essential throughout this crisis that people have given their consent to um, denying their civil liberties. Some, you know, some aspects have been very detrimental to people's um, well-being, but have taken place because of the bigger picture, that idea that we are part of something bigger than, than it is as an individual and we want to be in that society where we care for one another and we want to get through this pandemic. So that, that idea of shared consent um, has been really important. And you know, my parents have been self-shielding for uh, since mid-March and last weekend was the first weekend we were able to come together in the garden and I think someone pointed out that you know never before has uh, has uh, what the first minister said about being able to use a toilet in someone's house become kind of national news. But the, but the kind of shared responsibility, that consent that we have given to be able to get through this has been, I think, quite extraordinary till now. But then you see, as we saw in witnessing pictures and beaches of people no longer looking at the social distancing, we see that there is certainly you know, a, a, a feeling that, 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 that we're out of this crisis, and yet we know that the virus is still with us. And this silent killer that is around us will be with us for some time until we have a vaccine. And so 
how do we get this message of taking responsibility still, that consent to take responsibility for what is around us, but equally, how can we live a life with this here now present? Um, struck me yesterday, I was at the, my local GP's surgery, and um, we used to put in a prescription, now you're given a, a face mask, a, a disposable face mask to go and uh, when you're visiting the doctor or the, the nurse, um, you have got a glass screen round so that people are protected. Um, the change is visible. How long will that last for? How long will that be with us? We don't know. And we're going into this new reality, I hope, with open minds. But but um, we are in a new reality. And in that new reality, we still have to give consent to that. And that's something very important to see us through this. I think that raises the, a general point, which is that it is very unwise to pass laws that people aren't going to obey. That law is simply brought into disrepute. And that applies, of course, in relation to emergencies as to anywhere else. To take uh, a non-emergency example, uh, the legislation which bans smoking in pubs uh, was one where government was a bit nervous about the extent to which people might or might not obey it in the event uh, the public was ready for that. The challenge in emergencies is that the public may not be ready for them. And then you have an enormous communication challenge to persuade people uh, to do things which, as Catherine says, are deeply disruptive, at least potentially, to their daily lives, uh, and to explain to them why, the, the, why they are doing that. And the challenge for governments uh, is to do that in an orderly and in a sincere way. And uh, Catherine mentioned earlier different levels of government in the UK, whose communication styles have shall we say, uh, been a little different. And we can see in all of the, actually in all of the country, that um, consent is gradually being withdrawn uh, for, for example, public gatherings on beaches, to take a topical example. Uh, that's, a, that's a major problem, and it is, in essence, a failure of government. Yeah, I think it's a failure of leadership as well, and mixed messaging, as you touched upon, Jim, and I think that if we look at the emergency measures that came in, say at 9-11, and how we now experience going to an airport, although we've, none of us have been in an airport very recently, or will be very in the future. But I think that how we get through this, when we know this vaccine, I mean, the, the, the quickest a vaccine's ever been produced, I think, is four years. And although we've got the best minds working on that just now, and we hope that we will see something, we're going to live with this virus for a, lot, for a long time. And how each of us will live with this is going to be exceedingly important for our well-being. Is, is there, a, um, in a sense, a constitutional aspect to this within a UK context of a heavily centralised country where arguably, um, if you had stronger localised lawmaking, the distance between consent and law might be less problematic? Or is that wishful thinking? I think there's a little wishful thinking in there, but undoubtedly powerful local leadership can make a difference. Uh, the U.S. example is fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, when the central government in the U.S. Uh, was not doing particularly well on this, and clearly very divided between the political and the administrative leadership, uh, the uh, New York uh, governor um, yeah. uh, took a very powerful role. 
and it will be a, a challenge in uh, in this example to see whether localised emergencies can be made to work. Uh, and it won't be at an all Scotland level or an all England level, but it could be at a city-wide level. Uh, for example, in the northeast of England, Manchester is clearly facing uh, one of the larger uh, upsurges of the virus. But at the moment, we have no localised way of dealing with that. And that is reflects our constitutional history uh, as one of the most centralised countries in Europe and the systematic disempowerment of local government in both Scotland and England, uh, not, not just in England, uh, over the last 20 years or so. Uh, and if we want to have local consent, we need to give local authority. I can agree more with you, Jim. I think that where we've seen local leadership, particularly, say, Manchester, Randy Burnham and, 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 and others, is that um, where people have a, an overview of their local community and the services that come together with that, I think there is potential to see a greater devolution, uh, particularly in England, of powers, um, particularly when you want community buy-in to take decisions which potentially, again, put people's civil liberties uh, on hold. That raises in my mind the question of uh, whether emergencies might have two uh, linked effects on constitutional arrangements. Uh, one of which is to speed up emergency, to speed up constitutional change, and the other is whether it could produce constitutional changes which are intended to be temporary, but actually remain for better or for worse. My own view on that is that the effects are more likely to be political, which in their turn might have constitutional outcomes, rather than that the um, constitutional um, uh, the way in which power is allocated during an emergency uh, somehow solidifies into being a permanent allocation of power and thus a constitutional change. Uh, we referred earlier to um, the defence of the Royal Acts during wartime. One of the uh, ironies of that is that those of us who study the constitutional relationship between the civil service and the um, elected government, uh, all remember the case of Critchell Down, uh, which is used as an example of ministerial responsibility for official actions. What we forget was that it was, it, it was about the unwinding of the exercise of emergency powers post-war by officials uh, who did it badly, as it happens. So uh, emergency responses do tend to unwind because the need for them changes. What may be an irreversible effect is if they change the public view of the, how they're governed, of the legitimacy of different levels of government. Uh, and one might see a bit of that uh, in the US at the moment, where the legitimacy of the federal government is being challenged from both directions, if you like, uh, from the uh, what you might call the libertarian direction, but also from the uh, more um, status direction, which says the government ought to be doing more. So that will be an interesting place to watch as well. Catherine, would you like to ask a leave a final comment to that? I think there's an element of when does an emergency become a new normal, and in a way, where we're at with COVID, 
is that we've come into this pandemic, the pandemic is under control, we have a threat of a second wave possibility that could be at a more local level, it may not, a lot of unknowns, a lot of uncertainty, but it, both you see the weaknesses and the strengths when you're in an emergency of, of you know, a nation, of our global system, and I think that um, as we move to different stages, we're faced with the different challenges. And one of those elements is how, how do we ensure that in the future from this learning that we are taking, we're, we're, all, we're all going through, that we understand how we would deal with a situation similar to this in the future. How do we hold government to account in these situations? I mean, organisations have risk registers, they have key performance indicators, they have all these different elements to hold, to show good governance. Why are our elected governments, elected parliament, not, not held to the same scrutiny? And also, where you know the, the whole dynamic of public officials, our civil service, and the, the the relationship between the executive and the civil servants are, are issues which I think in our own country, in the UK just now, are under great pressure. So I think that there's a lot to be said about the future and a lot to be said about our learning as we go on, as we come out of this crisis. I think that's right, Catherine, if I might add a thought to it. Um, there will be lots of lessons to be taken from the present emergency, just as a, there were lessons to be taken from the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, one of them uh, will be, I think, the extent to which the emergency arrangements are rather more explicitly embedded in our constitutional framework, uh, the extent to which uh, the different levels of government, which have not been through this kind of crisis before, uh, have worked well or badly together, and that uh, will take us into general consideration of intergovernmental relations, but they are absolutely critical in an emergency. And another is, as you say, the clarity of responsibility between the political uh, and the administrative levels, a problem which we see all across the world. Actually, it's very, very evident in the yes. United States for obvious reasons, but it, it is an issue here. The role of um, elected and unelected advisors, uh, and that's a very particular issue uh, in the UK just now, it really would be a great investment of time and energy after this when we're picking up everything else to look at the constitutional implications of it and see what we need to do to write down a bit more of the UK's constitution reflecting how we deal with emergency situations. I'm sure we'll return to many of these topics again in future weeks. Uh, it leads me to thank Catherine Styler and Jim Gallagher and thank all of you for listening. Mm -hmm.